Our scripture today is Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. Hear the word of the Lord. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God God indeed. Please be seated. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so grateful for this season in your word and for the sending of your son. Lord, bless us as we study this. Open our minds and our hearts and our ears. Impress these words upon us that we may carry them with us as action everywhere we go. And all this we pray in your mighty name. Amen. It's the third week of Advent. It is the third week of Advent, which you know what that means. That means Christmas is literally around the corner. It's been a really enjoyable and exciting time in Advent, our first Advent as a church. And if you remember, the last two weeks we discussed first the anticipation of Christmas. And then we, we looked at the prophecy of Christmas. What We've looked at this kind of under the, the big idea, or the big heading of what does it look like to be in joy and anticipation as we wait for Christmas. We've spoken about the first Advent. We've also spoken about this time, our second Advent, as we wait for Jesus' return. But I want to take us down a little bit different of a path today. I'm going to take us down a little bit different of a path next week as well. I, I want to today, I want to talk about one of the most politically charged phrases you can ever say aloud. And I think everybody here would agree that the last couple years have been a little bit politically charged. And that's probably because ultimately everything is actually tied to our politics, which we'll talk about a little bit later, because everything is actually tied to who we serve. Politics is just a Greek word. It comes from the root politica, which means the affairs of cities. Politics is defined as the activities associated with the governance of a country or another area, especially the debate or conflict among individuals or parties hoping to achieve power. We've had a lot of that debate amongst parties hoping to achieve power. But family, the reality is everything in your life is political, whether you like it or not. And that's why I want to tell you today that the most politically charged phrase, statement, that you can make is, Merry Christmas. That's it. Merry Christmas. Now, you might think to yourself, oh boy, Craig's at it again. He's going to tell us not to wish people happy holidays, which I actually don't think you should do, because it's 2022 and he's going to tell us to fight cancel culture and stand firm and rah, rah, rah. All those are true, but not what we're going to talk about today. And I do encourage that. Don't say happy holidays, wish people Merry Christmas. But my, my, my point today is that saying Merry Christmas is a political statement because of what it means and and what it stands for, who it stands for, who Christ is, what his birth means for the world, what he has done, what he will do, what he is doing. 
And despite my mother's continued insistence that I'm not allowed to speak about things in polite company like religion and politics, nor mix the two of those, and I think you guys are polite company, if we're being truly honest, those two things have to go hand in hand. They are not conversations that we can avoid. You see, we've bought into this set of lies from our culture that our religion and our politics must live in these two separate boxes. One lives over here and one lives over there. And I think that's, that there are two limiting factors that we place on our minds that we have to remove before we can really study this idea of the politics of Christmas. The first is the excuse that gets tossed around all the time in America, specifically when religion and government are mentioned anywhere within six feet of each other. We've been trying to keep those two social distanced for a really long time. And what's that statement? That statement is the separation of church and state. You see, this concept, this concept of separation in church of state, it came from Thomas Jefferson, but it didn't come from the Constitution. It came from a letter that he wrote to the Danbury Baptists, and he used this term, wall of separation. This was an opinion piece that Jefferson wrote. It wasn't anything that was written into the Constitution. The Constitution, on the other hand, has two very specific things to say about religion. The first is, there will be no state church. And the second is that, so we wouldn't have like a, the, the Church of England, the Church of Scotland, the Church of Denmark. We wouldn't have the Church of the United States. And that the second is, by an act of Congress, that the free exercise of religion would not be infringed. No national church and your freedom of religion will not be infringed. Did you know, here's an interesting fact for you, go back and read some history books, that nine of the 13 colonies had state churches. Nine. This is important for us to remember. It's important for us to remember because even if it might make us a little bit uncomfortable, it doesn't make me uncomfortable, but it does make some folks uncomfortable, and I can appreciate that, our nation and laws are founded based on the Bible. They are founded based on the framework of Christianity. But secondly, and what I think is even more important than the history of the Constitution and laws, is that sometimes things can get taken grossly out of context a few hundred years later. See, what I think we have to do, and I've said this before, is we have to stop looking at politics from a partisan perspective. We have to stop thinking about donkeys and elephants and red and blue and division and teams and winning. Houses and senates and fighting and battles and television commercials and my guy wins and your guy doesn't and your guy's a jerk and my guy's not. We've turned politics, American politics especially, into a popularity contest. Whose team is going to win? Who's the most popular person to get voted as high school president? So that's the concept I want us to put away. That's not what we're here to talk about today. Instead, when you hear politics, what I want you to actually think of is the rule and governance of cities and countries and states and nations and ultimately the world. Because it's only from that standpoint that we can really understand why Merry Christmas is such a powerful and sometimes incendiary, that's a great word, and crucially important political statement. And it's one that we should be saying a lot right now. I appreciate you wishing us a Merry Christmas before you read the Lord's Word. So our text begins in chapter 9 of Isaiah, verse 6, with, with a statement that most of us are probably pretty familiar with us. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. We know that this child, this son, in the flesh incarnate is Jesus Christ. Think about what we talked about last week with the importance of prophecy and Isaiah's words. We know that 
For to us a child is born, a son that is given, that is the Messiah, Jesus. And we, we know this as well because Isaiah in 7.14 prophesied, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel stand for? Mean? God with us. Look at you guys. This is great. We could do, we could do Christmas prophecy trivia before the end of the day. <laughs> But this is the same son that's also mentioned in Psalm 2, in verse 7. Psalm 2, verse 7. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And see, I have to chuckle, maybe mostly to myself. Hopefully you'll join me as well. Because we all know and agree this. The church, we, the big church, right, up here, we all agree that this is who this person is. We agree this is what this prophecy is. But then it's in the next couple lines where like this sea of division seems to happen. We've all agreed up in this point, but then we, we, we get divided. But it's not really this outward division where people are really like, we're, we're theologically fighting all the time about these things. You see, it's, it's this division that's caused because we've allowed cultural preferences and traditions to kind of leak into, to seep into the way we read scripture instead of the other way around. We're looking at Scripture through the lens of the world instead of looking at the world through the lens of Scripture. And we have to actually stop that. We must stop allowing the way that the world is today to define the way that God defines the actual world. It has to be the other way around. We must look at God's Word and then apply it to the world, not apply the world's opinion to God's Word. These verses in chapter 9, verse 6, continuing, And the government shall be upon his shoulder. See, that's the one that kind of gets glossed over. It's a really beautiful piece of scripture, but there's not much mistake here. There's not a lack of clarity. The words of prophecy are pretty clear, and yet we don't really believe this. We don't really talk about this, do we? We're going to come back to that, but I want to kind of get through the rest of the passage first. Continuing, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. See, he gets titles as well. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end of the increase of his government and the same with his peace. There's no end of his government and peace. And then the rest. On the throne of David over his kingdom to establish and uphold it with justice and righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. There's thrones, there's justice, there's righteousness, and at the very, very end, from this time forth and until tomorrow. No, from this time forth and forevermore. Have you really thought about these words? Did you really chew on these words? We've read this passage now twice in the last, whatever, five or ten minutes. Do you see how they're all political words? Government, throne, prince, kingdom, justice, righteousness, forevermore. Nowhere did Isaiah say, a son shall be born and he shall be called the prince of mostly peace. Because he can't actually bring all of the peace into the world. He is the semi-mighty counselor, but he really can't get much done because uh, the world is kind of outside of his control because evil will just rule the day here for today and maybe possibly tomorrow. Amen. He didn't say that. He said forevermore. 
He said, his government shall increase. His peace shall increase. Do you hear the words? He shall rule with justice and righteousness. You see, God and Jesus aren't the problem. We are the problem. The problem is we get stuck in this world of like partisan politics. I'm a Republican. I'm a Democrat. I'm a Libertarian. I'm an Independent. And then you've got that one weird friend that lives down the street that's part of a party you've never met for before, but he's really excited about it and posts about it on Facebook. We have it all backwards. We shouldn't be worried about being Republicans and Democrats. We should worry about being monarchists. Woo! <laughs> That's a word that doesn't really get tossed around much, is it? Maybe unless you're watching The Crown or, or the Netflix documentary on the royals. Maybe you, you hear the word monarchy there. But it's true. We should be monarchists because who are we ruled by? We're ruled by a king, which makes us monarchists. We have a prince of peace. We have a king of kings. This king of kings, this is the season that we are in right now. We are awaiting joyful the arrival of what? Our king. Our king. <laughs> we have a savior who has the government upon his shoulder and a God who has promised to give him the nations. Psalm 2.8, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, our wonderful counselor, our mighty God is the King of kings. You might not have heard me say this. I'm going to say it again. Jesus Christ is the King of kings. 1 Timothy 6.15, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Have you really thought about the language that is used to describe who God is and God's position? If he's our king, that makes us his servants. He is our monarch. He is the ruler of the world and the universe and every single thing created within it. And God rules the world whether any of us like it or not. Our particular opinion on the matter has no say in his authority. He doesn't rule because he's asked our permission or we voted him in, which reminds me of Monty Python and the Search of the Holy Grail when they go get Sir Galahad. Who are you? I'm King Arthur. King Arthur? I didn't vote for you. You don't vote for king. I thought we were a republic. They have a whole thing about it. It's great. If you haven't watched any Monty Python, you should go back and watch some Monty Python. He didn't ask our permission. We didn't vote King Jesus to be King Jesus. He rules because it is his throne. He has authority over everything. You should let that really sink in. I can't also say let that sink in without thinking of Elon Musk now, too. It's, it's weird how, and I'm not even on social media, it's weird how all the cultural things pop into your brain. But we should be letting this sink in, right? We should be thinking about the fact that Jesus Christ is our king, he is on his throne, and that throne has authority over everything. Because as a Christian, you are governed by a royal monarchy. The royal monarchy, it said the only sovereign, governed by the king of kings. And the world before us, the people that came before us in time, they would have understood what this meant because kings in their time were beholden to God. People were ruled by monarchies. Now, we know that not all acted that way. I'm uh, reading through, I read through the whole Bible in the school year. And I just finished 1 Samuel. Sometimes kings don't rule in great ways. But the king was still beholden to God, so much so that in ancient Israel, 
the king was required to carry a copy of the Torah, law, the first five books of Moses, with him at all times. And I would imagine he had somebody carry it for him. But the idea was, or was it was supposed to be close to his heart all the time so that he could go back and reference if he had legal questions, if he had godly questions. He, who is he responsible to? God. That's the foundation. Because the king, the earthly king, was not the ultimate authority. The earthly ruler was not the ultimate authority. His authority was imputed by the Lord. The earthly king ultimately submitted to the heavenly king. It's so much different now, isn't it? Our modern-day rulers want the final word and the final say. It doesn't matter whether it's a pope or a Caesar or a pharaoh or the next Chinese or Russian dictator for life or the president of the United States of America or a leader in South America. It's all about power and authority and control and the final say because they act as if they are God. In our republic here in America, we will many times hear our rulers tell us that they specifically keep their religion and their politics separate. And when you hear that, that should scare you, but not surprise you. It should scare you because their religion should influence their politics. But it shouldn't surprise you when they told you on the campaign trail, my religion will not impact my politics in any way. And that's why I'm perfectly comfortable lying, cheating, and stealing, because I have ensured that my religion will not impact my politics in any way. This is why the politics of Merry Christmas are so much bigger than just the Christmas tree in the public square. Why it is so much bigger than just fighting back against the silly things when people are like, Happy Holidays! Don't say Happy Holidays, that's silly. You see, the politics of Merry Christmas have global implications. Because when we say Merry Christmas, we are making a declaration. We are making a declaration about this season. We are saying this is Jesus Christ's season. Christ Mass. Merry Christ Mass. Merry Christmas. This is Jesus' season. When we wish people a Merry Christmas, we are declaring it, as Doug Wilson says, the sun has risen, Christ has come, he is the king, the light that covers the world. A return to heathen midnight is an impossibility. Those who walk in darkness are now doing so in a world suffused with light. We can't go back. We can't go back to a world of darkness, friends. That's why we're optimistic. Christ has come. The world is infused with light. Christ's coming has global implications. So much so that even though the, the, the postmodernists would really like to change this, what year is it? Sorry, I can't hear you. What year is it? 2022. Uh, uh, where do we measure that year from? Anything happen kind of big around 2022 years ago? The birth of Christ! And what year is it in the heathen nations right now around the world? Still 2022, isn't it? And uh, what year was that, that measured from again, even in the heathen nations? Oh yeah, the birth of Christ. <laughs> they can try BC and BCE, it never stuck. I remember being in school, it's not in my notes, I'm sorry. This is why it runs longer than the word count. I write a certain number of words and it's around the same amount of time, but then I always go over because I do this. But I remember being in high school and they were like trying to change us to BC. Common Era and before Common Era. It was, it was CE and BCE. And it didn't stick. Why? Because we all know what we're measuring time against. You can change the label, but it's still coming from Jesus Christ's birthday. The whole world acknowledges this. 
the whole world recognizes that the event that took place 2,022 years ago had global implications. And why is that? Because Jesus Christ is king over the whole world. Matthew 28, 18. Most of you would know this is the Great Commission. Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority. Not like a little bit of authority or just authority over America or just authority over Christ Church or authority over Australia. Not some, but all authority. You see, this is why Christmas and Merry Christmas especially is political. Because Merry Christmas is making a declarative statement about who Jesus Christ is and what he has come here to do. It is so much more than just a greeting during a season. It is a statement of joy and rejoicing. It is a statement that declares to us a child is born. To us a child is born. A child who came to save the world from their sins. A child that whom all things were created through and for all things. Three o'clock this morning, I don't even know if you know this, I woke up and I wrote a note on my phone. To get thoughts at three o'clock in the morning. I'm going to re- record a podcast about it's either all or nothing. It's what we were talking about last night at the outpost. All, all, all. We see this word all in the Bible, but we don't really think it means all. We're like, man, they said all. Maybe it just means some. It's about all. All authority in heaven and on earth is given to Jesus. This is what we are saying when we say Merry Christmas. Colossians 1.16 For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Again, that word all. All things were created through him and for him. That's the statement you're making when you say Merry Christmas. That is what you are acknowledging when you say Merry Christmas. That is what you are declaring when you say Merry Christmas. And ultimately, this is why we are optimistic and joyful. I've been having this fun theological debate about postmillennialism and what I refer to, many refer to as the postmillennial hope with another pastor friend of mine. He's a really smart guy. We spar quite a bit, mostly because he's a Baptist and not quite ready to baptize babies yet. He'll get there. But we have been working through eschatology a lot together. He and I have been growing theologically for the last five years and through text and phone calls, theologically sparring. He's been surrounded by a whole bunch of people that think the way I think and the way we theologically think. And so this is spurring a lot of our discussion. But I was pondering where the foundational foundational differences with, with him and I kind of come down to. And it actually boils down to optimism, not theology. It boils down to the fact that I am actually an optimist, and I have a lot of religious friends and a lot of pastor friends that are not optimists, especially when it comes to God and his kingdom. You see, if God is who he says he is, which he is, and if he does the things that he says he will do, which he did, which means he will do the other things he says he will do, why don't we believe in him? Again, the the problem isn't God. The problem is us, because the Lord has been very clear. He's told us what he will do, He prophesied how he will do it, and then you know what he did? He did it. And we're still here like, well, I mean, resurrection from the dead. Does Jesus really have control over all things? (laughs) Like, it sounds humorous when we say it in this space, doesn't it? 
Because we all know, we all know that our sinful hearts get in the way where we try to limit God's authority or we don't really believe that He is going to do the things that He has said to do because we have sinful and prideful and hard hearts. So that, that comes to the point where we're like, you know what? I think I know better than God. I, I think he says all, but I'm going to put him in this box with some caveats and some limits. And, and we say, you know, God actually can't really do all things in the world. Like, have you seen the state of the world? Have you been outside? But that's not really the way it should be. When we declare Merry Christmas, we should joyfully declare Merry Christmas because we're acknowledging this great thing, this optimistic thing. We are saying that the Prince of Peace has come that there will be no end to his rule. And this should actually give us optimistic hope. Because if God is all good and he is in control, why worry? Truthfully, why worry? See, this applies so much to, our, uh, to the way that we approach this world, but also the way we approach to building God's kingdom in this world. Because if you don't share in the hope that things are going to get better, that the church is going to be triumphant before Jesus' return, then you will end up a pessimist. Even if it's subconscious and you don't realize you are a pessimist in your relationship and approach to faith and building God's kingdom. Because what we believe about the end matters. We saw this during COVID, Stan. People believed things about the end. We're all still here, thank God. But they believed things about the end. It was coming near. We're all going to die. And how they acted was directly tied to their belief of the end. We all have an eschatology. It's a fancy theological term that means end times. So if we believe in a negative eschatology, religious or, or secular, pagan, then we are going to act that way here and now. If we believe in an optimistic eschatology, then we're going to act that way here and now. Because this impacts the way we build our families, the way we build our homes, the way we build our businesses, and it especially impacts our politics. It impacts how we govern and how we are governed. Because if you believe things only get worse, you believe, if you believe that the church doesn't grow in the influence and the peace that the Bible says that it will, then how are you going to live your life here and now? How are you going to even build God's kingdom here and now? See, when we fail to be monarchists, when we fail to see Jesus Christ as king over everything, we end up limiting God and his power. Kristen and Sophia went to get their nails did the other day, and there was a woman at the nail salon who shared an incredibly tragic story with Kristen and Sophia, a woman who needs an incredible amount of grace and mercy. And she needs the saving grace that can only come through Jesus Christ. I love having kids here. Let's see if I get her to wave. Hi. <laughs> this is so good. It is so good. The kingdom of God is so good. How can you not be optimistic? But she was, this woman needs grace. She needs mercy. She has an incredible struggle. Now think about the traditional evangelical approach. Obviously, we need to share the gospel with this woman. We need to share with her the truth and the hope and the renewal that can only come through Jesus Christ. We need to disciple her, pray for a conversion. All those are good things. But we also need to be telling her something deeper, not just the, like you want to go to heaven, right? You want to be saved from your sins, right? Those are important things. Being saved from our sins 
thank God, thank God, literally thank God. We were all, that's why we, we joyfully yell, thanks be to God, once we, we, you, I proclaim the assurance of pardon, because thank God we are saved from our sins. But if all we're going to tell her is like, hey, listen, it's, it's only going to get worse, but, 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 but Jesus is really cool, and he'll save you from your sins, we want you in faith, but there's no tangible benefit to right now and right here, but you get to go to heaven later and it'd be so much better there. I mean, heaven's going to be great. It's going to be awesome living in a place where there's only peace and there's only love. But God's message and God's gospel is so much larger than that. God's gospel transforms every aspect of life. We, are we tell people, we read, that we are to rejoice in the time of our struggle. Rejoice. I'll say it again. Rejoice. In Philippians, uh, Jesus, the Beatitudes tells us to rejoice when we are persecuted for his name. But how are we to rejoice if we don't actually believe what we're building here builds things better? Yay, rejoice, I struggled. But then I'll just be like identified by my victimhood and my struggle, but that's why I'm really rejoicing. Versus rejoicing that you are a part of the building of God's kingdom. We may not see all the glory that the church gets to have in the millennium in our lifetime. But if we don't really believe in it, how are we going to build it for our children's lifetime and their children's lifetime and their children's children's lifetime, leaving an inheritance to them, something that is joyful? It's the cathedral builders in, in Austria that took 400 years to build a cathedral. That's five generations of families. Four of them never even got to see it completed, but they believed in the hope of the future. And I'm sure those families had rough times. I'm sure those communities had rough times. You see, we can recite Paul's words and Jesus' words about rejoicing, but when we don't treat Christ as king over everything, we end up actually not living the life of rejoicing. It has to be more than just, well, Jesus told us to rejoice. Well, it'll get better when I get to heaven. And here's why. Because everybody is ruled by something or someone. Everybody. Everything is political. In the last few years, we have seen a lot of this, and not much of it in very particularly helpful ways. We saw a tyranny at a global scale. We saw rulers demand blind adherence. We saw people being ruled out of fear instead of rejoicing and acting in a loving manner. And why? Because we forgot who the true king of kings was, is, was then, is now, still is, was then. You know what I mean. The king of kings, the ruler of rulers. Everything in the world is under Christ's authority. God cannot be God if he is not in control of everything. Otherwise, he wouldn't be just and righteous. And see, ultimately, all of these things in this world are, are to serve his good purpose, his good will, his good pleasure. My prayer for us is if we look back with a little satire and some laughing, because that helps us, over the last couple years, it actually should be a reminder for us as the church that we as the church must be joyful. We as the church must acknowledge outwardly, Merry Christmas, Jesus Christ is King, and we must tell the world the same thing. We must go out and proclaim Christ is King, because we're optimists. The darkness can't win over the light. If you want optimism, I might have said last week, the week before, go look at the church in Africa. Man, that's a cool place of optimism. It is incredible, the expansion of the church in Africa while we feel the contraction of the church in America. I have some things I'm going to say this week about 
that. It's about entertainment versus obligation, and I think a lot of that plays into the contraction of the American church. But we should be optimistic. God has told you he rules the world, that he makes all things new, and that he will increase his peace and increase his government. And so we are called to be his agents, his servants helping build that. And so that is why we're optimistic. That is why we can give hope to others. That is why Kristen and Sophia can give hope to a stranger and say, I, I don't know when we get to recognize these things. We don't know how parts of our stories play out. But Jesus Christ is king and all things serve his good and glorious purpose. And that is a life worth living for here and rejoicing. Not just like looking at the watch like, when are you going to take me? When are you going to take me? Come on back. I want to get to heaven. I'm sick of this. What a pessimistic and negative view. And it's impacting the way the church is engaging with the world and loving their neighbor. And since I haven't said enough things that could possibly cause slight amounts of discomfort, there's been a lot of hubbub recently with the term Christian nationalism. It's amazing. If you throw the word nationalism into something, all of a sudden there's like this tinderbox and everybody's waiting for something to explode. <laughs> but I want to make a statement that I believe and that I believe ties directly to Merry Christmas. I want America to be a Christian nation. I want North America, South America to be Christian continents. I want Russia, Europe, the North Pole, the South Pole, the Galapagos Islands, Easter Island, one of those like floating offshore oil rig things that's declared their own independence. Wasn't there some guy that had, he like moved onto a, like a platform and put a tent on it and declared himself a sovereign nation? I want him to be a Christian nation too. See, I believe because God has said it so that the whole world belongs to Jesus Christ. All of it. All of it, all of it, all of it, all of it. And I believe that the world is a better place when it is ruled by Christian standards and a government that is responsible to God. The Christian legal system, the Deuteronomic legal system, is one that is fair to both believers and unbelievers. It is one that requires witnesses. It is one that proclaims justice because it is accountable to God. Why don't we want that for the whole world? Why would we not want a, a ruling system that bows the knee to God that demands that you have to love your enemy? Really? Like, all right, well, we've got all these rules and uh, most of them are around loving your neighbor and loving your enemy. <laughs> Hogwash, that sounds awful. Why would we not want leaders who are accountable to God. Can you imagine? I know I've said this like a dozen times, but there's a couple new people. They haven't heard it yet. Can you imagine if your politicians apologize to you? I'm really sorry. Last week, I lied to you. <laughs> Did he just say that? Someone rewind it. But how much more would we respect our leaders if they were honest instead of pretending to be perfect? We know they're not perfect. None of us are perfect. We all mess up. We, we all get persnickety. We all need to apologize. I was, my, this hernia thing going on, and it hurt so bad last night, and I really kind of shortened persnickety with Kristen while I was just trying to just shake some chicken wings with stuff because I was in pain, and I was persnickety. It involves, I have to apologize. I let something here, let me be a little bit grumbly somewhere else. Why wouldn't we want a system where that level of accountability and loving our neighbor and loving our enemy is being spread on a global scale. I believe that the world is a better place when it is ruled by the standards of the Bible. And we should all believe that too, because we should believe that God's word is complete and sufficient and true. I also do not believe that America is the poster child for any type 
of Christian nationalism. In fact, I actually think the opposite. I think America needs to get back to its Christian roots so it can return to be a more just, righteous, kind, and peaceful country. But just saying that very statement and using those two words together in a sentence is so incendiary and can cause so many people, even Christians, to recoil. But why? I think there's two reasons. The first is they haven't actually read their Bibles. Just read your Bible. There's a lot of really good words in there. And there's illustrations. And there's great stories. And there's nothing new under the sun. And you're going to read and be like, I needed to hear that today. Like the passage in James. And the second part is, we don't really believe that Jesus Christ is king over everything. But it is just so clear. And it's so clear it's worth reading the whole section again of Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. There's not a lot of confusion. That is not like we have to go pick up illustrative language. It's pretty clear. Christ will increase his government and peace that he rules over all. So why don't we act like it? Well, we know the answer to that is sin. We know that our sinful hearts don't like to be told what to do, that our hard hearts don't love authority structures. We see this everywhere. We see it in public schools where teachers aren't allowed to discipline kids because the parents will be upset. We see it in the workplace because a boss tells a worker to go do a a particular part of his job that is his job, and then the worker decides they need a safe space because they don't want to do that part of their job even though they signed up for it. We see this in the family when we moved away from the patriarchy into this weird egalitarian approach. So much so that not only is the husband no longer the head of the household, but we've put the kids in charge. The inmates are literally running the asylum in so many homes. You see, when we stop thinking about authority structures and we stop recognizing that authority structures exist, hierarchies exist, and that they are established by God, we end up in this weird like chicken with its head cut off world that we find ourselves in now, where we're like, well, we need rule of law, but we don't want anyone in charge. All the police are bad, get rid of them. Somebody call 911, where are the cops? They're not here, you fired them all. Like, we need authority structures. We need hierarchy. But if we don't believe in the post-millennial hope, this is the place we're stuck in. Infinite loop cycle. <laughs> Makes sound effects too. We get stuck in this, well, it can't really get better. It's all proof that it's all going to end soon. Jesus, please come back and teleport me to the sky. It lends us to religious resignation. Why work for the kingdom if it's not going to get better? Why do anything because it's all just going to end anyways? We resign to that, even if we do it subconsciously. But that is not what God has told us, and that is not what God has promised us. God has promised to make the nations his footstool, Psalm 2.8. God has commanded us to go out and make disciples of which nations? All nations, not just America, not just that guy on the oil rig out in that. We should go visit him, though. <laughs> we could drop a tract from the sky. I'm not a tracts guy, but I'm not really sure how else you would get something, like a care package. Not with a water bottle, though, because if we drop the water bottle and hit him in the head, <laughs> that's, the he- that's the headline that would make. Odd religious group from Colorado injures man with water bottle dropped from helicopter. Story at 10. <laughs> and a message of hope. 
God has called us to go out and make disciples of all nations. Why? Because all authority on heaven and earth has been given to him. So let's live that way. Why are we not living that way? Think about this. What's one of the hottest topics outside of COVID in, in the world today? It's justice. Justice. I learned the term. Do you guys know the term Jedi? I learned the term Jedi this week. And it's not a Star Wars reference, which disappointed me greatly. Jedi means justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion. See, when we stop acting like God is king, we end up with crazy stuff like Jedi. We end up with, we end up with corporate officer positions that pay incredible salaries and have stock options so that somebody has a diversity, equity, inclusion. Now they can have us. What, what's your role in the company? I'm the CEO. I'm the CFO. I'm the Jedi. Ooh. <laughs> now, before everyone runs out, you should all know I am actually for justice. I am for kindness. But what I am not for is cultural silliness that doesn't, doesn't acknowledge where real justice comes from. When we take God out of the equation, what do we have? We turn the politicians into God. Where do we get the concept of justice from? The Bible. We get the concept of justice from the Bible. Isaiah 51.4, Give attention to me, my people, and give ear to me, my nation, for a law will go out from me, and I will set my justice for a light to the peoples. We might have to do Isaiah when we finish Matthew. I think... That might be our next few-year role. It's such a great book of the Bible. I will set my justice for a light to the peoples. God's justice is a light for the peoples. Laws are not inherently bad, but it depends on who's making the laws and who the lawmaker is accountable to. How can you have real justice without the one who determines what is just? If you want an interesting exercise, go back and read your Old Testament. You want to read about property rights? They're there. Do you want to read about victims' rights? They're there. Do you want to read about rights for those who are outside of the camp of the Israelites? They're there. What about laws and penalties for crimes? They're there. What about laws of witnesses that you have to have? They're there. You see, justice and righteousness only comes from God. 9-7, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forevermore. You see, Jesus' justice and righteousness is from this time and for evermore. So, why, so this is why we should pray that our civil rulers bow the knee to Christ. How could we not want them to? The, the myth of neutrality is just that. It is a myth. Nobody is neutral. None of us have the ability to be neutral in anything that we are engaging in. We all have presuppositions that, that form our worldview that we bring. We have bias. Everybody does. Bias is not an inherently bad thing. It can be. But when we know where our presuppositions are, I am biased against Brussels sprouts. That is not a bad thing no matter what you say, or fry them or try to cook them crispy. But we have to know where our presuppositions, where our worldview comes from. No politician can separate their religion from their politics, even if they claim to have no religion. That should actually scare you more. Because we can assume that if they say they have no religion, then their politics is their religion. This is why I want Christianity for the world. I want the world to be living under the righteous law of God, I, I want us to believe so strongly in our faith and the hope that we want everybody to experience the joy and the new birth and life that comes only through Christ. Think about a world where neighbor loves neighbor. Like, really, think. You don't need a welfare system if you live in a Christian world. Because 
We are the welfare system. You're down hard on your luck? Well, we'll, we'll feed you. We'll give you a place to live. We'll care for you. Maybe we'll give you a job because that's what communities of people do. We don't need big government programs to do that. We need church. And we need church planting that replicates itself in communities that know people. We want politicians who bow the knee to Jesus Christ. Because we're all ruled by someone. We want our leaders to acknowledge who their ultimate leader is. We want them to make laws that align with God's word, that align with God's righteousness. Did you know if you lived in a civil society that, that had God as the foundation, you would need a fraction of the actual laws and the books that you need? Because if people are actually accountable to one another, you don't need everyone policing. I mean, look, look at what happened during COVID with the, all of the um, self-deputized people. It was so splitting. I don't care where you sit on the COVID debate. Watching people scream at each other in, in, in buildings about appropriate wearing of things and not things and all this, like it's broken. That's not loving your neighbor. When we have a Christian society, those values are, 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 are rooted. They're seeping out of us. They're so deeply rooted us, they impact every single thing that we do. John Calvin stated it well. Though the kingdom of Christ is in such a condition that it appears as if it were about to perish at every moment, he wrote this in the 1500s. Nothing is new under the sun. Yet, God not only protects and defends it, but also extends its boundaries for far and wide, and then preserves it and carries it forward in uninterrupted pro uh, progression to eternity. Uninterrupted progression to eternity. We ought to firmly believe this, that the frequency of those shocks by which the church is shaken may not weaken our faith when we learn that amidst the mad outcry and the violent attacks of enemies... The kingdom of Christ stands firm through the invincible power of God, so that, though the whole world should oppose and resist, it will remain through all ages. We must not judge of its stability from the present appearances of things, but from the promise which assures us of the continuance, of its continuance, and of its constant increase. The theology of postmillennialism was the was was the theology up until a couple hundred years ago, especially this last hundred years where World War I and World War II really shook the Western world. And people said, how, how can things be getting better when the Holocaust? That's a fair question to ask. Mass tragedy, pogroms. We have learned to kill humans in incredibly efficient ways. It's, it's heartbreaking. It's evil. How? How can God exist in this? The problem, family, is our view is this narrow. John Calvin, writing this in the 1500s, is saying the same things. And he's telling us the same things. Don't lose sight at present appearances. God has made you promises. Take the macro view back way out. Zoom that camera lens out. Don't think about the stability from present appearances, but think of the promise. This is the promise we are declaring when we say Merry Christmas. That's why it's such a politically incendiary statement. Because when we wish people a Merry Christmas, we are not declaring that, that just that Christ is the reason for the season, which he is, but also, as Doug Wilson says, he is the Lord of the season. He is definitely the reason for the season, but he is the Lord of the season. So as we wrap up, I want all of you, as you, you go out into your lives this week, into your communities this week, I encourage you to live like someone who is truly merry for Christ. I, I encourage you to live like someone who is merry for Christ. 
I encourage you to wish everyone that you see a Merry Christmas because Jesus is King. And if you're going to say Merry Christmas, you should say Merry Christmas. We should be wishing people a Merry Christmas because Jesus is King and all righteousness and justice are His. All authority under heaven and earth are His. And He is defined. His title is Prince of Peace, Mighty Counselor, and Everlasting Father. He is the one who is here to make all things new, not some things new. His government and his peace will only increase and will see no end. This is literally the most hopeful message in the history of the world. And we should be carrying this hopeful message into every single interaction. Who you vote for, how you treat your employees at work, how you treat your boss at work, how you treat your family, how you treat your neighbors, how you treat your enemies. You will know that they are my believers by the manner in which they love one another. So, joyfully shout Merry Christmas, live in the hope that only comes through Jesus Christ, and let us be outward representatives of that optimism and that hope everywhere that we go. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word and for your son. And Lord, I pray as we exit this place that we are people that will joyfully declare Merry Christmas. Lord, our hard hearts can get in our way. They can get in our, uh, our way of, of truly believing that you are our king. So we ask you this week, especially as we prepare ourselves for Christmas, as we pray ourselves, as we continue to disciple all nations, that it is impressed deeply upon us that Jesus Christ is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Prince of peace, that his kingdom will grow, that his peace will increase, and that we are agents of that in the manner in which we interact with one another, the manner in which we interact with the world, so, Lord, let us be agents of peace. Let us be agents of kindness. And let us do everything that we do for your glory and your glory alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.